Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Sounding Board. Tonight we're discussing our third music city after covering Glasgow and Oxford in previous episodes by shining a light on a metropolis with a truly rich musical history, Manchester. Later we'll discuss Jaguar Mars album, Every Now and Then, as our LP of the month, a platter that allegedly owes a lot to the Mancunian legacy. But to replace and preface our Manc discussion, we're pleased to welcome a new guest panellist, Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. That's right. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say. And a Mancunian you are, I understand. Yes. Yeah, yes. Born and bred. Yeah, great. Um, unfortunately, uh, Neil Kennedy is not around this week again, um, but we have got Ben back. Ben, hi, Ben. Hello. Yep, yep. Um, so, first of all, any, any things that have caught your eyes in the news, fellas? Uh, well, Bob Dylan winning yes. the uh, <laughs> little matter, <laughs> yeah, the Nobel Prize for literature. Um, I've just absolutely loved what well, the award of it, the kind of po-faced reaction afterwards, um, the whole fallout from it, and his kind of understated reaction today, where he came out and said that he can turn up and accept the award, you know, if he's got the time to do it, and he hadn't spoken about it for a fortnight because he was just so stunned. That he, that he couldn't uh, comment on the fact that he'd won a Nobel Prize. But I thought as a reaction to kind of, you know, there was a lot of kind of uh, intercultural snobbishness, I think, about, uh, I mean, whatever you think about it, I mean, I, I don't particularly care who wins that award, and, you know, it's a trinket, it means nothing to me, really. Yeah. But there was a lot of very, you know, arrogant, Snooty. intellectually snobbish yeah. kind of, you know, uh, reaction to him winning it. And I'm, I just, I, I thought that kind of delayed response of his was a lovely little uh, understated two fingers. But didn't, I was going to say, didn't the panel actually criticise him for being, suggest he was rude and arrogant for not replying or not sort of responding to it immediately, which is kind of, you know, his, him saying he's actually stunned by it is kind yeah. of slightly more reverential than it. Well, it's exactly that. I think he was meant to appear benighted, like, oh, we bestow this amazing yeah. award on you, Mr. Dillon, and you know, you don't respond to us for two weeks and this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I very much enjoy been enjoying all that. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, it's been an interesting um, discussion, certainly, and, and does throw quite a large light on what um, represents high culture and what doesn't, and maybe something we could return to in a yeah. future mm. podcast for sure. Uh, ben, how about you? Uh, I've got three quick things. Um, first is, uh, since the last podcast, I went to um, South Sea Fest um, in South Sea in Portsmouth, um, which is back after a year off um, when it was replaced by the smaller Dials Festival. Um, it's one of those sort of uh, festivals that takes place in a, a range of venues. Um, it's all along Albert Road um, in South Sea. Uh, there are a couple of venues further field this year, including the Pyramids, which is on the seafront for some of the biggest acts. I'm not sure that entirely worked. We certainly didn't go anywhere near the Pyramids, um, just stayed on Albert Road. Um, otherwise, it was as lively as, as reliably enjoyable as ever. Um, two of the top tips, I would say, were... October Drift, to a band who've played in Oxford a couple of times this year, here in Oxford a couple of times this year. Um, I'd hesitate to call them post-punk for reasons that will be made clear later on, but they are kind of post-punk, I guess. They're quite like editors, I guess. Um, sort of stadium, stadium sort of take on post-punk. Um, and also Dream Wife, um, who were excellent at Dials last year and again this year at Southsea Fest. Um, they're much like La Tigre, I'd say, sort of okay. a riot girl with a bit of, bit of pop to it as well. Um, secondly, uh, I finally got around to checking out the Marissa Nadler album Strangers, which was actually released back in May on Bella Union and Sacred Bones. Um, first came across it at the Shark ATP in 2012, um, and her album of 2014, July, was, was superb. And this one's actually almost as good, I'd say. 
Um, it's got the same producer, which is a, actually a metal producer, Randall Dunn, which makes it quite interesting sonically. I think it's also quite a bit fuller. It's got a lot of more additional musicians. Um, and just to link into our main topic of the of discussion, she's actually playing at the Night and Day Cafe in Manchester on the 8th of December, so I'd highly recommend that. Um, finally, um, most eye-popping bit of news, even more so than Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize of Literature, is the fact that... Um, Art rock experimentalists, and the emphasis there is on the mentalists, uh, Negative Land, giving away two grams of late member Don Joyce's ashes with every mail order copy of the album uh, The Chopping Channel, that's a new album, uh, while stocks last, they've said. Uh, the band's statement said, uh, We've decided to take The Chopping Channel concept to its logical conclusion by productising an actual band member. It's also a celebration of the degree to which no idea in art was ever off limits to Don and offers a literal piece of him and of his audio art for the listener to repurpose and reuse, we are pretty sure he would have wanted it this way. And in those terms, it seems almost rational. Productising is a new word for me, <laughs> I have to say. Um, just for me, not so much news, but Pitchfork, uh, the American website with whom we're constantly um, at loggerheads with in a tussle for hegemony <laughs> in terms of uh, online uh, comment on music, uh, they have released a very interesting list of sort of 50 shoegaze albums across all the eras, not just the shoegaze era, which I think most people would guess would be around about 88 to 92. Uh, this is like modern stuff as well, so stuff influenced. And, you know, it's like one, all these lists, very provocative. I mean, half of the um, albums on there, one would say, really fit only very loosely into the shoegaze moniker. Um, but... That's not to say that actually some of them are actually pretty good, and I quite like the breadth of it. Uh, so it's something to look out for on Pitchfork. Uh, definitely one in which to have a look through and replenish your record collection if there's a few things you haven't heard of, because there's a real diamond mine there. So credit to them. Um, so we're going to move on now to our big discussion. Uh, we've already done a couple of music cities. We've done Oxford, where we had Ronan Munro from Night Shift magazine in, and we did Glasgow very early on, I Episode think. Episode two, yeah. Episode two, uh, both of which I think were very enjoyable. Uh, but we're going to do Manchester tonight, so we've got a resident Mancunian coming in, in Mike, as discussed. And uh, I myself would say that I was a student at Manchester for a short period in the late 80s and into 1990. And uh, as a result, Ben's going to ask most of the questions, well, but <laughs> does is a big fan of you know some of the music certainly, yeah, and, yeah. and has plenty to say as well. So, so yeah. Um, first of all, I think we're just going to sort of personalise it a bit and bit and pick out a band each and and why they're important to each of us from Manchester. And uh, Ben, but do you want to kick off with the yeah? World um, I'm going to kick off probably. Well, for me, the obvious place is um, is Joy Division. Um, Perhaps a contentious choice, actually, um, for those who like the split hairs, because they were always keen to point out they formed in Salford rather than Manchester. Um, now, if we look at uh, Simon Reynolds' book, uh, Rip It Up and Start Again, that underlines the fact that post-punk is a, a pretty nebulous term, and it's it's probably best apl- applied to a, a period of time, or perhaps an ethos, rather than actually a specific form of music because punk actually spawned a whole explosion of different forms. Um, but like it or not, post-punk has become a musical label, I think. And if you're talking about, as a musical label, um, Joy Division are the godfathers and originators of that sound, more so than anyone else, including um, Public Image Limited, I think. Um, the sort of signature elements are the, the scratchy and spiky guitars, lack of distortion generally, a sort of sinuous bass, motoric drums. Um, the sound's both pretty austere and spacious as influence of Krautrock and dub, I think. 
Um, in, in Joy Division's case, the, the sort of sound is very influenced by um, the production, which we've talked about before. Martin Hannett, very, very important there. Um, and also the, the sort of very distinctive vocal style of Ian Curtis. Um, I think in that respect, it was, it was actually a genuine break with the past in the way that some of the... Um, some of the sort of punk uh, bands, um, they claimed to be a big break with the past, but they weren't actually. Sex Pistols, for instance, heavily indebted to pub rock um, almost immediately before that. Um, um, so I think I, mean, I think I, I think the name's great. I think a lot of people don't like it, but I think it's perfect. Um, referring to, to groups of female prisoners in Nazi concentration camps who are sexually exploited by the soldiers, it, it suggests a sort of twisted pleasure, also unspeakable pain and horror. It's very politically provocative, so it does everything that I think a, a good sort of punk or post-punk band name should do. Um, if I had to pick a favourite track, it would probably be Transmission. Um, and to add to that, it's probably sacrilege to suggest it, but um, I'm a huge fan of the therapy cover of Isolation. I think I prefer that to the original. Um They've had a massive influence on post-punk, um, but also on, on goth as well, and on anything kind of gloomy, really. And for me, it's pretty incredible to think that the three of the members would go on to record World in Motion in 1990, <laughs> uh, England's official official song for Italian 90. Um, yeah, so they, they'd be my pick, I think, as a kind of the forefathers of it all, really. I don't think we've got any naysayers here in arguing against Joy Division significance, have we? No, no. Massive, absolutely. Massive. Yeah, I mean, clearly, clearly, clearly an important band. Uh, even though I think at times the myth has been mined to such an extent that one gets a bit sick of the number. They, of they weren't around very long, would they? I mean, it's a very, yeah. very short career to be that influential. But I think you know the number of people that cite them. I think it's it's pretty extraordinary. Some people cite them when they don't actually sound a lot like them and they want a sort of touchstone that sounds cool. But I think they are actually hugely influential for that, such a, a short lifespan, really. I'm loath to bring up, of course, the obvious point that Ian Curtis ended his life early and whether that has an impact on how we view them. What's your view on that, Ben? Uh, I'm not sure, really. I mean, it means that they, they didn't make a bad record, I yeah. guess. Um, and that's that's kind of, from my view, that's the same. We talked about Nirvana last time out, and that's kind of the same. They could potentially have have, um, have made bad records if they if they'd carried on. Um, that cult of of the uh, the sort of um, ill fated singer as well as that contribute to it probably does. Um, but I think the 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 those sort of little bit of recorded material that they did leave is you know stands the test of time and has been hugely hugely influential. So. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And also the actual music, as you say, I mean, just the, the, the sheer agonising intensity of it yeah, is yeah. just so evident, isn't it? I mean, but intense without being um, quite as aggressive as punk as well. It's, it's yeah. intense with a with a sort of spaciousness to it, which is quite interesting, I think. Yeah. Well, just as an actual segue, my band that I'm going to pick out, and not my favourite band, because I think Mike's going to talk about them, my favourite Manchester band, but uh, I'm going to talk about New Order, who are often sort of seen as... You know, sort of paling in insignificance uh, in comparison to Joy Division, and of course, sort of three of the members were in Joy Division. Um, Blue Monday, of course, is the track that everybody knows. It's like it was a monstrous kind of twelve-inch hit in the eighties. It kind of almost invented the twelve-inch genre. Um, but actually, the first time I came across them was on top of the pops when they played Thieves Like Us, which was a, an uncompromising, unsmiling performance amid all the 80s guff that was on a typical <laughs> top of the pops performance at that point. I think David Cox in our episode last week uh, told us how struck he was when he first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit on going live. And I felt not quite 
that strongly, but you know, it certainly made me think this is very different. Um, since then, in interviews, the band have really emphasised how knockabout it all was and that they weren't actually that serious, as is maybe evidenced by the, the later World in Motion appearance. But, but you know, at the time, they seemed to be icily serious, you know, often photographed, as Joy Division were, in front of kind of the big tower blocks of Hume and, <laughs> and you know, see this post-industrial, um, you know, that was reflected in Factory Records, and we'll talk about a bit later on as well, who were the record label. Um, but the thing I really like about New Order is that the changes over their career, you know, I mean, we saw in Closer, you know, Joy Division's last album, you know, the, the sort of willingness to take on board synths. I mean, you mentioned Isolation as a track. Um, and that that was a musical innovation that really New Order kind of kept up, certainly throughout the, the initial 10 years of their career. I mean, I think Power Corruption and Lies and Low Life are both superb albums um and then you know there were some great singles as they got kind of slowly dancier you know bizarre love triangles like a bit of a high point and then the ibiza album that she came back from sort of certain intake of drugs in 1987 and and recorded technique which uh, which which is a really really kind of you know very well formed album um i found the later stuff from regret onwards to be sort of too regressive it's gone back to the guitars a bit too much and isn't really that interesting the odd good track you know regret you know is a great track um peter hook was obviously a driving force and i think it's all kind of ended in a massive meltdown yeah, now yeah. um and you know it, one of these things I, I have less interest in the whole legend surrounding them since but when i arrived in manchester in 1987 as a student they to me really represented the city and the cityscape um i was a bigger fan of the smiths by far but the smiths for me were always a bit of a bedroom personal band whereas new order were more a band that you would sort of think about when you were out wandering the streets so so yeah i love them absolutely Mike? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about the Smiths. Yeah. Um, so I'd say a bit different from the bands we've discussed, obviously the two so far. I mean, they're on rough trade, so they're not connected to Manchester in the kind of label way that, uh, you know, Joy Division and New Order are. But I think they're perhaps um, the most Manchester band of all. Um, what I mean by that is the kind of reference points that they make, they make to the city uh, throughout their music, you know, Wally Range, uh, Rush Home Ruffians... Um, you know, the gatefold of the Queen is dead with Salford Lads Club, all that kind of thing. Um, so that immediately kind of places it in Manchester. And that, as someone from Manchester, that's kind of, you know, it's, uh, it's something that strikes you a bit. Um, their body of work, I think, is the most impressive of any Manchester band for the, the span it was recorded in. I mean, they went from, I think, Johnny Marr knocked on... Uh, Morrissey's door and suggested forming a band a year later they're on top of the pops five years and four albums later they were finished so it's kind of um that compacted body of work with you know a, a slew of like great singles that weren't even on any of the albums um you know they took their craft with b-sides seriously they've got some bit really iconic b-sides too um and I don't think I mean you could even take it out of Manchester and take it to the rest of the UK or even the world I'd I think their body of work, it short, compact, and pound for pound, I think you could put it up against pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, any any other band in history. Um, I mean, I got into them when I was a student, so I was uh, would have been about 20 years old with a, a sort of friend of mine who who um, who got me into them. So I kind of sort of worked through them backwards. I mean, obviously, I was I would have been um, 10 when they split up, so they, you know they meant nothing to me other than you know I just heard of them with this band from Manchester. Um, as a band, I mean, I think as a combination, they work 
beautifully. They've got a fantastic rhythm section, uh, Rourke Joyce, which is kind of always overlooked by the fact that you've got an absolute genius on guitar. I mean, Johnny Marr, he was a, he was a kid. I think he was 24 when they actually split up. So he was, you know, he was very young when he was doing all this, but and he, he was so gifted that you know the intro to How Soon Is Now, he can't even replicate it himself. I mean, that's how... Uh, <laughs> That's how kind of drenched in brilliance it is. Um, and, you know, allied to, uh, you know, Mars genius, you've got um, a very divisive and polarising <laughs> uh, figure, shall we say, um, in Morrissey. But I think he's someone who helps... Um, I think he makes them the ultimate kind of band for misfits, really. I don't know. I do think they're kind of the ultimate indie band in that way. I mean, you can say what you like about his, you know... His politics. I think recently he called Brexit magnificent. Magnificent, yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and he said a lot of very, you know, very ill-advised things. I think down the years. I mean, some people think he's been ironic. You know, other people think he's being, you know, um, very matter-of-fact about things. Um, and a lot of that has kind of come after the everything he did in the Smiths, really. So he's, he's kind of like he's done his level best to kind of trash his legacy. <laughs> so even even withstanding all that, I think for you know, lyrically what he did with the Smiths, I think lyrically the Smiths were a kind of quantum leap forward, I think, in British music. I think, um, you know, the kind of literary side of it, um, the kind of, it was very dark, it kind of counteracted a lot of the, you know, the jangly kind of poppy uh, guitar stuff that Johnny Marr did. But I think through a lot of that ran a, a there's a kind of humour in a lot of the songs, you know, like Cemetery Gates or Frankly Mr Shankly or Girlfriend in a Coma. You know, I kind of... Um, a kind of witty, a kind of dry, sly kind of humour that kind of underpinned it all. Um, and, you know, Morrissey, they had, they, he was an odd cocktail of a person. He was kind of part Bowie, part Elvis, part librarian kind of thing. <laughs> he just a really kind of... You kind of couldn't be pigeonholed as to what he was. So I'm not sure um, whether he was an introvert or an extrovert, was he really? Kind of somewhere in between, but not kind yeah, of... Yeah, that and the whole the ambiguous sexuality yeah, yeah. and all that kind of thing. Um but the, th- the thing I like most about him, and it, it, it kind of survives for me all the kind of, you know, the stupid things he said, is his ability to kind of capture in one line, like the, the essence of something or, you know, what you feel about something. Um, the refrain of um, uh, Panic, where he goes on, um, you know, uh, hang the DJ, hang the DJ. and But the line immediately before that is um, he's going on about the banality of you know, radio in the 80s. And he says, um, you know, it says nothing to me about my life. And that that kind of sums up, all, you know, a lot of what I think about a lot of the music that was around um, at the time then. There's a great line in, or a couple of lines in Rubber Ring. Um, Don't forget the songs that made you cry and the songs that saved your life. You're older now, you're a clever swine. But um, I can't remember how it goes now, but... Um, when you lie on the floor in the bedroom, or, you know they were, only, they were the only ones you ever stood by. I've got those lyrics wrong, I'm afraid. But, um, <laughs> Not at all. No, yeah. But um, and I think just that kind of speaks to you in a way. Or certainly spoke to me in a way. It's like when I discovered all that when I was twenty, it was kind of the band I wish I'd discovered when I was fourteen. Mm, instead yeah. of you know being into grunge and all that <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with that, though. No, nothing no. wrong with that at all. Um, and yeah, as I say, Morrissey, very kind of polarizing guy, but. Um, one thing that kind of exemplifies this, I've got a sort of anecdote about, um, I went to a pub, I don't know if you know the Star and Garter, Rob? No. It's kind of near Piccadilly Station, but I went to a Morrissey night there, <coughs> uh, which a friend of mine, Martin, invited me along to, I think it's about 13 years ago now, mm. and I had no idea that so many people actually look like Morrissey in Manchester, or <laughs> who, who look like him but are hidden away. I mean, it was like walking into 
that scene from being John Malkovich when he's just <laughs> surrounded by all the other John Malkoviches. Mm. So it's a combination of that. And then kind of right-wing skinhead thugs were there as well. It's just this weird... No, really? Yeah, yeah, so you've got the one people who took Morrissey on one level, you know, the music, the arty side and all that, and then, you know, the misguided kind of right-wing leanings, all this kind of stuff. It was, uh, yeah, a very bizarre night, and we got over there in about half an hour. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Sounds quite alarming, yeah. yeah. But yeah, how did you feel about the Smiths? So you would have been in... Oh, I was, I was. yeah, I remember... I mean, I first time I came across them was I heard... Uh, uh, what difference does it make on Top of the Pops? And then uh, this local radio station that wasn't the very most local radio station where I lived, but it was one county sound, which was run out of Guildford. Oh. They used to to run a, a sort of album of the week and uh, they played five tracks, whole tracks from the album. And, uh, you know, they played five tracks from The Smiths, the first album. And I just remember thinking, this voice is just unbelievable. I've heard nothing like it. And I wasn't 100% sure that I liked it for the first <laughs> first sort of hour or so. Then, then it came round to me. Like, like I said before, the same with my feeling when Thieves Like Us came on on top of the pops. It was just through all the guff, something that seemed real and genuine, and you know, sort of crafted. You know, rather than this sort of mm. big glossy production that you get with yes, Prince, Michael Jackson, all those people who are now lauded seem to be just horrifically mainstream compared to the Smiths. And like you said, Mike, it's. You know, those other bands said nothing to me about my life. The Smiths said everything to me about my life. Mm. So, yeah, I, was, I bought the singles as they came out. I mean, they're still my favourite band. They're still absolutely 100% yeah. my favourite band. And to the extent that they always will be, it's like supporting a football team. And I've also become exasperated and worse with <laughs> yeah. Morrissey. Uh, I mean, the autobiography, or autobiography, as it was called, released yeah. in Penguin Classic was... That he insisted it was in Penguin Classic I mean, rather than Penguin. Yeah. that, for the most part, was pretty unreadable. Um, I, You know, so, yeah, it's disappointing, even though I do defend him on occasion on the kind of ironic thing that he shouldn't have to kind of spell things out for a, for a public that maybe don't understand. But, no, I mean, just, as you say, a perfect body of work, you know, mm. I mean, like, you know, just absolute brilliance, yeah, and, and um, yeah. I, I, mean, say, I came to them very much like you. I think my kind of late. Um, so I, it was it was friends of mine who were big fans, and they kind of um, I wouldn't say forced the Smiths on me, but you know they, I guess they did. But it was very willingly because I, I took to them quite quickly. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a, like, a huge fan, um, but I do definitely enjoy them. But I mean Morris, yeah. Generally, if I'm, I want to know what to think about an issue, I just see what Morrissey says and think the opposite. Run in the other direction. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's doing the way. He's he's kind of yeah. I just listen to him just for that that purpose he says but I, yeah I do I do definitely like the Smiths and Johnny Marr yeah, I mean the the guitar work is is phenomenal yeah um okay so we've sort of touched on um a few of these issues that we're going to going to sort of uh, explore in more detail now um so I was just going to sort of start with you actually Mike and ask okay. um what do you think there was there was clearly sort of a, a real sort of extraordinary creative burst um in Manchester between sort of late seventies and, and then the early nineties or early to mid nineties, um, so are you able to sort of account for that? What sort of reasons do you think might be standing behind that? Well, there'd always been a kind of disparate kind of music scene in Manchester before. I mean, kind of nineteen seventy six is the the year zero basically, and I'll get I'll get onto why in a second. But you know, before that, you did have you go back and there's things like you know the Hollies and Ten City, but it's very kind of. Um, Disparate, but what we know as a kind of Manchester scene now is often attributed to one gig, uh, June the 4th, 1976, uh, and it's the Sex Pistols playing at the Lesser Free Trade Hall. 
uh, which is a gig set up by Pete Shelley and Howard DeVoto, who were kind of in the really, really early stages of doing the Buzzcocks at that point. And they'd been to see the Sex Pistols in London and then invited them up to do a gig um, in Manchester. There's a great uh, book about this um, called I Swear I Was There, The Gig That Changed the World, which is um, written in a bit of a pop bit style, but I do recommend reading it. It's uh, certainly a very entertaining book. Uh, and uh, having read that from that, uh, so the Lesser Free Trade record uh, record show that 28 tickets were sold for the gig. So that, yeah, it's only 28 people there. But of the people we know that were there, there was uh, Shelley and Devoto, obviously, because they organised the gig. Uh, a 17-year-old Morrissey, uh, Peter Hook and Bernie Sumner, who off the back of that gig went out the next day, bought guitars and started what would become Joy Division. Uh, and Marky Smith um, went on to form the fall, and also Paul Morley as well, who, as a writer, kind of documented the the start of that scene for the enemy. So I mean, Tony Wilson, Martin Hammett were there as well. Apparently, well, apparently, well, yeah, not that's according to the book. A contentious one, not according to the book. No, I mean, the book is a wonderful kind of um, catty Mancunian spat about who <laughs> who was and wasn't actually, actually Just, at the gig. Another big name I was going to mention later on, but I guess you might say he wasn't there either. Yeah, yeah. Tony Wilson, to the day he died, swore he was there. Right. And but there's far, far many more people who swear <laughs> swear that he wasn't because this is like one of at the time you know he was on Granada News every night. Yes, and yeah. Everyone knew who he was. Um. So yeah, that off that the back of that one gig, I guess. I mean, yeah. So the strike rate there is seven people out of the twenty-eight. You know, went on to have a huge influence on them. Um, uh, the scene we're going to talk about, and you know the the three bands we've discussed so far, basically they've got what they owe a kind of debt to that gig. I mean, it's kind of debatable. I think you know whether it would have happened anyway. I mean, those people are obviously going to that gig, you know, because they're interested in music. So you know, the, there's always the, the kind of sense it's going to work another way. But it's um, yeah, I think it's the kind of that it all starts there I mean that's the kind of yeah, everyone, yeah. everyone involved in that whole scene kind of acknowledges that, at, mm. that you know their first exposure to punk um, there was another gig uh, I think that's six weeks later well, and, the, and the word was out on punk by then and the word was out on the Sex Pistols and I think there was about 150 people that was the mm. Lesser Free Trade Hall as well uh, and that one Tony Wilson definitely was at right uh, as was probably was Mick Cutler with him I think oh, maybe, right, maybe okay, the person yeah. you were referencing yeah. uh, <laughs> okay um, Earlier on, so that's that's the kind of you've got the kind of seeds there of a kind of scene um, very early on, and there's a lot, there's a couple of other things as well that kind of keep it um, give it exposure in Manchester, but kind of keep it local. Uh, one would be Piccadilly Radio, which started in 1974. Um, I mean, local radio now is you know, widespread. It champion, you know, BBC Oxford does a great job here championing local bands, but back in 1974, that was still kind of a fledgling thing and putting on, you know you know, local artists and things like that. So Piccadilly uh, Radio was very influential in, you know, getting a lot of these uh, Manchester bands airplay. And also uh, Granada. I mean, Manchester's very lucky to have a local television station. Um, and there was an arts programme called So It Goes, presented by Tony Wilson, uh, which showcased... It basically documents the rise of punk, basically, and it's, the Sex Pistols had their first television appearance on there, not the one they swore on. But, yeah. Uh, you know, one earlier than that. So stuff like that, it kind of, you know, you had the gig where the word got out to Manchester and then you had the kind of 
the methods, you know, the radio, the infrastructure, the yeah, the infrastructure yeah. to kind of showcase it, which a lot of cities, you know, like Liverpool doesn't have that. He's kind of own television station kind of thing, so they don't have that kind of mechanism. But in Manchester, that was kind of vitally important in, you know, getting the word out to people. What, what about sort of later on towards, you know, I mean, I've, I've kind of made note here that this is me from the outside and also after the event as well. Was it particularly important that um, that Manchester seemed to embrace? There was a sort of a you know rivalry between the the world of rock music and the world of dance music. Whereas in Manchester, it seemed to actually be embraced dance culture and and all the rest that went with it, including the drugs, were embraced by um, the indie bands. So you had Happy Mondays, you had Stone Roses, you had Primal Scream, who with Andrew Brother were almost a, a you know effectively a Manchester band. Mm-hmm. Um, that was quite sort of forward thinking, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. New Order, of course, yes, they, yeah. uh, massively influenced by sort of Frankie Knuckles and those kind of DJs from New York and uh, later Acid House. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, and, and certainly in in the shape of the the legendary Hacienda. Yes. Um, I mean, I I would say, you know, it was a, as a venue. I mean, it did actually hold several really really important gigs, including most of the major players. But you know, my time there, I, I did regard it more as a club that played great music mm. with great DJs rather than a sort of by a music venue. By that time, you know, the Ritz, which is nearby on Whitworth Street, was was just as important as was the International 2 down in Longside. Mm. And the Boardwalk, which was a small venue just around the corner from the Hacienda, which, to be honest, half the time there were not many people there watching the bands, <laughs> but quite a lot of the bands played to a handful of people and then went on to become quite big. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there was definitely... The aim, I mean, it was always, a, even back then, you know, reasonably multicultural city, so had a reasonably sized Afro-Caribbean population. So I think there was always that influence. And then the PSV Club was another one, which was achingly trendy. That was in Hume. <laughs> and only the very, very most most fashionable, daring people would ever go there, in my experience. And they used to they didn't play any white music at all. I mean, it was, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people were influenced by that. So there was a real determination not to disappear down an indie rabbit hole. Mm. You know, there really was. Um, and then in terms of labels, um, I mean, I think it's just overwhelmingly dominated by factory, really. I'm not so au fait with the 70s labels that, you know, with, with some of the mm. earlier stuff that Mike was talking about. But, you know, the Smiths and the Stone Roses kind of actually hated their labels. You know, mm. I mean, like the Smiths hated Rough Trade. Does anybody who's read the aforementioned autobiography <laughs> by Morrissey mm. will, uh, will know only too well. And the Stone Roses had a massive falling out with their label, Silvertone. Mm. So, so, I mean, really, um, you know, factory, just in terms of the whole aesthetic, the whole kind of way things were set up. Wilson does come across as a bit of a buffoon at times. That is really, the word I've got written down here, buffoon, yeah. yeah. But really, you have to give him incredible credit, yeah. don't you? I mean, I remember the first time I ever saw him was on TV, one August, advising kids what to do with their A-level results. Yeah. You know. The fact he was a newsreader, but also, I mean, they're presenting so, and so it goes as well, yeah. but it's completely unheard of now. I mean, there was sort of, you know, high status, I guess, local newsreaders in the northeast when I was growing up, and you could never imagine them championing the Buzzcocks or anyone like that. No, so. no, no. It was quite incredible, really, just, seeing yeah, him different. Yeah. chameleon-like in that respect. Yeah. On the one more thing on the on the get on the venues and gigs. I mean, I'll mention a couple of other later on, but the venues and the labels. But um, I, I, I've got a note of Wigan Casino written down. 
That's not Manchester, as far as I yeah. said, so I don't think it's necessarily mm-hmm. relevant, even though undoubtedly in that period of the Northern Soul sort of thing, there would have been a lot of Mancunian kids who would have, yeah. who would have gone there. Um, I think there were kids from all around the country who went there, and I don't see that as necessarily being a quintessentially Manchester thing. I might yeah. be wrong, but yeah. Yeah, I think one thing that we'll kind of get to realise while we're doing this is that um, Manchester, in terms of when people talk about music in Manchester, has a very broad... Uh, kind of radius you know it's not just Manchester it's great in Manchester and you know right into Cheshire and you know Lancashire in a long way and I mean there's nothing to stop that urban sprawl going and it never did and it's, so it's hooked in a lot of you know like the Verve for example a lot of people yeah. think of them as a Manchester band but you know they're from Wigan and a, lot, yeah. and a lot of the bands we will talk about have got members from you know Cheshire outposting absolutely yeah yeah um just on on sort of fact I was going to say what what's interesting I mean I think maybe this is um being a massive fan of 24-hour party people, and I think it really comes across in that, is the fact that um, that sort of passion for music can get you a long way even when you've got absolutely no mm. business sense whatsoever. Um, mm. The fact they they didn't have contracts with anyone, so New Order were the ones that owned all their music, weren't they? So um, so when they were in, when, uh, fact, were in trouble, no one wanted to buy them because they didn't actually own any music. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it gave the bands great freedom. I think the bands loved them for that. Um, but then the fact that they managed to, lose, you know, classically, famously, they managed to lose money on on some copies of not all, but some copies of Blue Monday because they the packaging was more expensive than the, the cover price. Um, and I, I think what was is, is quite key, and for this is that we've, I think in previous episodes we've talked about um, a record label being a, a sort of marker of quality. And with Factory, you had a sort of coherent brand. It was the idea of this mm. being a label being a brand. The fact that you had <coughs> Savile doing all the covers and the packaging, you had Martin Hannock doing all the production. Um, you kind of knew what you were going to get, um, and if you saw something coming out on Factory, then it was going to be worth investigating. I think. Um, just on the hacienda, I was fascinated to, to learn it actually opened in 1982. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was, you know, and it, and it was losing money for a long, long period of time. I was under the assumption it kind of opened, you know, late towards the late 80s when when Acid House no. was taking off. But the fact it was kind of there and not really, I guess, doing much for no, no. Yeah. no. Sorry, Mike. Also, I was going to say it ran for a bit as a kind of. Uh, a pastiche of a, a working men's club in the north, and I think <laughs> on the opening night, I think Bernard Manning uh, sort of did a spot for them and just gave his feedback and said, "You're going to need it." <laughs> that's one of the kind of possibly embellished, kind right, of, yeah. you know, uh, urban legends about the whole thing. But yeah, as a venue, I think it kind of it turned a loss for mm, yeah quite a long time yeah. before it was successful. You know, it ate up a lot of the money from the factory, but yeah, also had things like you know Madonna play there in 1983. Yeah. Really? I think. I mean, I remember going for the first time in my final week of my first year at university, having gone to the student bars for a long time and thinking, "Oh, I don't want to go to that." <laughs> place in town because it's way too trendy and pretentious and everything and I remember like thinking my goodness this is amazing (laughs) because they didn't really compromise on the music they played a lot of kind of the more obscure stuff that I liked you know it wasn't just you know chart stuff it was it was it was genuinely like really really good. So I've got a little bit more to say later on 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 in in connection to Baggy on this. But well, I was just going to say yeah. as well, it, it's 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 now no more sadly. Block of flats called the Hacienda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, as is the way with these things, you knock one down and gives them the name of the old building you've knocked down. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a sort of part of a sorry narrative that's being repeated all around the country. Um, for for victim to the authorities and the. Force of gentrification, which I think we mentioned in the last episode when we were talking about fabric, didn't we? Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, just to come back to you again, Mike. Um, so, how do you think the um, sort of Manchester music has reflected the 
the political and cultural reality of the city. I mean, I think there's a there's a feeling that we've been discussing before that um, these sort of forces of gentrification have been experienced particularly acutely in Manchester and yeah. maybe accelerated by the the work that was done to repair the damage caused by the IRA bombing in '96. Um, has that meant? Do you think music um, that is perhaps less essential and, and more bland? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I, even before the '96 bomb, there was kind of urban regeneration. It was, yeah. kind of, it was in the air anyway. Um, and and some at some point around them, they got awarded the you know the Commonwealth Games yes. as well. So that that flooded a lot of money into the city to kind of you know tear down. A lot of, you know, a lot of very iconic stuff, and just put like blocks of flats or kind of office spaces in its place. So, um, a lot of the the guts of the heritage of Manchester music scene has just been kind of ripped out of the city. I mean, the you know the Lesser Free Trade Hall, yeah, is a hotel gone, yeah. now. Uh, the Hacienda we mentioned is a block of flats. Um, uh, quite amusingly, actually, when they were advertising the flats, which I think were like a million quid ago, the Hacienda flats, the tagline was "The party's over now, you can come home." As if anyone was <laughs> raving in the club in that kind of era could, uh, you know, unless they're actually dealing the drugs in the club, could afford, could afford uh, you know, a flat for a million pounds. But um, they're like the international Rob mentioned, I think it's a Turkish supermarket now. Nice. Mm. Uh, the boardwalk is office; uh, it's just kind of office space, and it's. All those kind of cities in the north, really, all the regenerated ones, you know, Sheffield, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, you go around them now and it's very, you know, it's just, it all looks and feels the same, really. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of lack of character, I think, where a lot of these buildings, like the Hacienda should be a, a listed building as far as I'm concerned. They should, yeah. You know, they should never knock that down. It's so culturally um, important to the city. But I think that affects the generation that follows. If you don't have that kind of baton, uh, that kind of baton passing thing, I think. Mm. Um, and you, you know, you, you kind of need that around you. I think you need that to kind of touch on to draw from. I would say anyway. I think you've mentioned mm. Mike that of the generation that followed one band that you do quite like, a Doves. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, is that are they maybe the kind of last hurrah, but like early noughties of of that kind of style of music? Or um, yeah, I think yeah, probably. Mm. Yeah, I think I would, yeah, I'd say that they were the last one. I mean, they, they came out of sub sub. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, very yeah. interesting band again because they, yeah. they did the whole crossover, didn't they? Rather than yeah. being an indie band that kind of got influenced by yeah. the club scene, they were in the club scene and then exactly, became an yeah. indie band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing I think we should probably mention as well is um, Acid House, which kind of yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things about um, I'm not going to mention her name, but uh, the woman that ran the country uh, for <laughs> for the whole of the 1980s, well, certainly not after the uh, the Orgrave decision today. Um, you know, you had a lot of kind of young people, you know, on the dole and living in dole culture, and also across Manchester. I think at some point in the 80s, there was 20,000 square feet of disused or abandoned warehouse. And out of that sprang, you know, warehouse, you know, illegal waste, yes. that kind yeah. of thing, which had, which had, you know, that kind of had its roots in the Hacienda. So all of this stuff is kind of uh, interconnected, I would say. But I mean, all those warehouses, they're gone now. I mean, Salford Keys is a redeveloped, you know, mm. uh, business part. And you, you just wouldn't have that anymore anyway, that kind of, not not in the way it was anyway, I don't think. I mean, I think, I think the other thing that's changed in the last 20 years, and it's a problem... You know, it's probably why you don't get scenes in Liverpool or Bristol or even you know Glasgow anymore. Is there's like the digitisation of society. You can't just kind of squirrel it away in one city and you know not have London realise this is happening. And then there's mm. this huge thing going on in Manchester, and they all kind of pile up to kind of find out what it's about. It's just um, 
it couldn't take place in that way, I don't think, anymore. No, you were kind of talking about that with Seattle in the last episode, remember, yeah. where you, you mm. had a, a scene of sitting, because that was, that was just, just pre-internet, really. Mm. Um, so you had a scene that was going on, and it was able to kind of develop organically, and then people started taking notice, and then it just got exploded, and then something's yeah. everywhere. Um, I mean, I was going to say that, obviously, I looked at Joy Division at the start. Um, I think they're very much like a, a product of the time and place, that sort of late 70s Manchester, There's a, that sort of bleakness and austerity... I think is reflected in the in the music, um, which is then slightly problematic when you hear all these bands that say that, that are or say they're influenced by Joy Division because they're in a completely different context, you know, in terms of time and and place. Um, so it's kind of they're just taking things out of context, I think, really. But to me, they definitely sound like the, like the time place they came from. I think. Um, so Rob, um, we've kind of been talking about you know iconic bands here, but. Um, is it fair? We should have probably also mentioned some of the other bands that uh, Manchester's produced, acts Manchester's produced. Um, Hamburg of, of some of the more mainstream acts been in, in forging that identity. Um, is it just a matter of convenience that we're forgetting about BGS and Lisa Stansfield and M People and the aforementioned Simply Red? Um, I think a little bit. I think like in any any alternative scene never completely envelops the city to the extent that everybody's into it. I think it was always in a minority of people who would go down the Hacienda, would listen to the Smiths. Um, you could only see that by the chart positions all through this era. You know, the likes of Simply Red and Lisa Stansfield from Rochdale, admittedly, you know, were, were getting like bigger hits than the Smiths on the order. The Smiths tracks would go in at number 10 at the very highest and go straight back out again at the charts <laughs> because the, the small amount of devotees would listen to them. Um, so I think there's always been that kind of quite shiny dressing up to go out kind of thing going on in the city. I mean, there were some like really big nightclubs when I arrived in the city and could including one on Oxford Road called Rotters that I sort of tweeted a picture of earlier on. <laughs> and it was like just a complete meat market and it was like a very, very mainstream place. And then later on, um, not having to dig, Mike, but when Man United started becoming successful, I mean, wasn't there like a bar they were known for going to that was on Dean's Gate yeah. and it was oh, horrifically yeah, 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 mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Everybody wearing even, gold yeah. and white clothes and, and you know, none of them were into decent music. I mean, you know, so, um, I mean, take that are probably like the interesting band. I know they're not all from Manchester, but I think I'm right in saying that they kind of a lot of the, the way that the... the the um, infrastructure around them was Manchester-based, wasn't it? I'm yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and and they almost, I mean, they were interesting because although they were, you know, a manufactured pop act, they were just close enough to being half decent that they weren't completely dismissed, you know. And then when I, Robbie Williams started hanging out with Oasis, who we're obviously going to come on to in a bit, um, and you know, and Angels was always that track at the indie disco that they would play at the end, you know, like <laughs> and the couples would come in. It was like the acceptable face of kind of mainstream pop, <laughs> and it was almost as if like take that were like somewhere between that very artificial boundary between what's considered to be mainstream and what isn't. Obviously, pretty solidly on the mainstream side of things, but but that that almost kind of you know um, signalled the death knell, I think, for for alternative culture in the city. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it always been there. I mean, some of the you've mentioned some great points about bricks and mortar, Mike. I mean, all the redevelopments, I and mean, I remember there were some some sort of bars, lots of bars that opened up in the early nineties and mid nineties that that you know are a bit after this that were quite shiny and there was a mm. place called I remember called Duke's ninety two, which was, still there. Yeah. was on the yeah. canal and, yeah. and you know, impeccable taste, you know, nice little bit of tapas, you know, nice sort of mm. cool mm. continental lagers, 
sort of bit of trip hop, you know, playing in the background. Um, but for me, that was like, but you needed a bit of money to drink and eat there, yeah. you know, and I yeah. felt that that was like a bit of a step away from the kind of spirit of the original Manchester. Yeah. Well, the, dri- the dry bar was very much like that, yeah. which was, you know, yeah. bought mm. and paid for via, you know, factory. the factory yeah. in the Hacienda. Mm. But, you know, it's kind of owes more to yuppie them, really. I mean, it's yeah. just kind of, you know, they were so flush with cash that they bought, you know, this kind of... Essentially, a city centre, city centre wine bar. Wow. It's so far removed from the kind of you know, flush or uh, or just extravagant and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I was, I was actually going to say I was going to kind of slightly take issue with the question there because I think it's possibly like a slightly artificial division between the two sides because I mean M people, for instance, I didn't know this. I just found this out this afternoon. Um, the M people actually founded by Mike Pickering. Mm. That's the M of the name. That's what the M stands. Um, and and he used to actually book all the bands at the Hacienda. Um, and he DJed there and yeah. he was also working at the factory so he wasn't kind of completely on the other side of the fence as it were and then also Mick Hucknall we mentioned mm-hmm. he didn't okay maybe not been at the first Sex Pistols gig but he was at the second one yeah. um, and he was in a punk band at the time the Frantic Elevators and, and Holding Back the Years the Simply Red song was actually first recorded and released as a single by the Frantic Elevators in 1982 um, and then we also mentioned Doves as well Doves kind of came from I think the Sub Sub was quite, was quite mm. a big sort of mainstream club hit wasn't it yeah, it was um, huge yeah. and then they I wouldn't say that they became a sort of an alternative indie band mm. but they weren't completely mainstream um, so I think possibly that divide is slightly yeah. over exaggerated I think so I mean in the 80s it seemed enshrined in politics really yeah you know, the, mm. the, you know and, and daily life I mean it was quite it was pretty bleak when I got there in 87 I mean it was like a mm. lot of homeless people a lot of boarded up buildings you know yeah it was, um, you know and I think the the aforementioned bricks and mortar stuff that you both discussed uh, mm. has, has been really fundamental to the change. Yeah. Um, so, Rob, um, Baggy, we've kind of touched on it. Um, what? Any reflections on that? I mean, I'm particularly interested to know how you think it's aged. Well, I mean, I think reasonably well. I mean, I was a little bit contemptuous of the Stone Roses when they first turned up as they'd been a bit of a workaday indie band beforehand, mm. albeit with some good tunes. I mean, Sally Cinnamon's a great track. Um you know, and it wasn't until, you know, they came up with I Am The Resurrection and uh, Falls Gold that you thought it kind of transcended just being another jangle pop band. Um, the Mondays, to this day, I still don't understand how they managed to turn out music mm. of the quality that they did, given that they just seem to not have a single brain cell mm. between them. <laughs> um, and Pills and Frills and Belly Aches is just a brilliant LP, and you know, I think it's really good. I, 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 I think it... It stands up reasonably well. I mean, we, when we talk about Jaguar Mar later on, I think we might sort of explore this in a bit more nuance. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just really welcomed it at the time. I mean, it was like, you know, a new thing. Um, I mean, the, the you know, the, the imitators, I mean, I think they're from Northwich and the Charlatans, you yeah. know, like initially I was just so, you know, just dismissive of them. But actually, in retrospect, they, they have turned out a few good pop singles um Northside obviously comedic um <laughs> but Paris Angel's Perfume is one of my favourite <laughs> ever songs so so you know I mean I think you're probably right that it's fallen out of fashion it's not a, it's aged that well but I don't know I mean doesn't everything go in a bit in and out we well, talked about it, David Bowie didn't we, we a few weeks yeah. ago how in the 80s he just disappeared from view if we're so, going to talk about Jaguar Mar then it's suggesting it perhaps is coming back into fashion but, possibly um, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, but but I, I think I think you know my views on Stone Roses. I won't go into that in detail. But <laughs> I have to say, I'm, I'm slightly more favourably disposed towards the whole nexus of, of Baggy and Acid House and and Madchester. I think um, having watched Shane Meadows' This Is England '90, which was based on the soundtrack to that, um, 
I'm still not <laughs> convinced enough that I want to watch his Stone Roses documentary Made in Stone now. I think I'll uh, still set that aside. Um, any, any thoughts particularly on that, Mike? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's always kind of struck me about the Happy Mondays is I pe- think people are quite enthralled to the story of them. It's kind of like Apocalypse Now. It's like the, the story of it being made <laughs> is actually better than the actual, yeah. you know, all the anecdotes about Sean Ryder and... Uh, it's probably the same as the Motley Crue book, The Dirt. I think yeah. I haven't actually read that myself yet, but I know lots of people say it's a brilliant book. Yeah. But you don't actually necessarily want to listen to any music after you've read it. No, it's just no. the story behind the scenes. No, they've got a good body of work. That's the they thing. Do, yeah. yeah, I just, uh, it's just, I don't know how they've pulled it off. Mm. <laughs> really, quite honestly. But yeah. I think the one thing that came out of Baggy, I think, is the lasting image of what people think uh, Manchester is. Yes, that kind of. I mean, it's the point of self-parody by the end of it, the whole, the, the kind of Manchester rave on and the baggy and the... Kegels. Yeah. The Kegels, yeah. And it's, it's, it's done for Manchester what Harry Enfield's skit on the Scousers has done for kind of <laughs> Liverpool. It's kind of... People do that really over-the-top kind of impression kind of thing. Terry Christian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. Well, one other band I would like to mention, actually, are James. Who, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, had one thumping, like, massive hit with... Uh, Sit down, but, yeah. You know, we're co- we're within the city itself, we're absolutely huge. Uh, it started off as kind of Morrissey, kind of uh, you know, yeah. like in the shadow of him, you know, in the mm. 80s, and like quite quite interesting yeah. kind of stuff, and then sort of moved towards the baggy yeah. a bit. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and the Stone Roses they started out as goths, yeah, know, like, yeah, paisley covered, you know, very, oh, yeah, very, 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 very moody uh, people. Yeah. But yeah. I think what what baggy has done is spawned a lot of really just awful imitators I think yeah. um, and that, that's kind of one of the legacies of it that doesn't kind of you know, that's, but that's often we, again we talked about grunge last episode I think that's yeah. often the case with something that's, that's innovative um, and I think it's it, yeah there's lots of bad rock bands indie bands trying to show dance influences and I think that's probably that's yeah. partly responsible but um, so okay to go on to um, we have touched on Oasis we haven't really mentioned them much um <coughs> Possibly the last truly significant band to come from the city, I guess. Now, I haven't. Uh, there's a, re- a recent Quietus article, and this is probably the Quietus being deliberately contrary. Um, the article was attempting to claim that Be Here Now is both brilliant and the high watermark of their career. Uh, I think not. Um, yeah. So, sort of Britpop has been critically reevaluated um, in the last, certainly sort of in the sort of 20, 20th anniversary, really recently, of things like uh, mm. um, Park Life and. Uh, and definitely maybe. Um, and as a result, it's actually been generally vilified, um, in my opinion, rightly so, largely. Mm-hmm. Um, has that had a particular impact on Manchester, do you think? Is it particularly um, damning Manchester, or particularly uh, has Manchester particularly suffered as a result, do you think? Um, I think so. I mean, they're, they're the kind of... They're the point of reference now for if any band does come out of the city now, it's, they always go back to the the most recent big thing, yeah. Which is Oasis. I mean, we had all this fuss when the Cortinas came out. Mm. Um, you know, like lots of you know, like lots of the the imitation bands I mentioned who aren't even from Manchester, you know, like Kasabian and Razorlight and other people. It's like, all right, well, yeah, you've got the haircut and you've got a kind of attitude about you, but that's you know, it's two percent of the battle. You haven't got any songs, kind of thing. Mm. And I do think that was the problem with the Cortinas, but. Um, yeah, with Oasis, I'm not really sure where you include them in the, the kind of lineage of what we've discussed so far. To me, they kind of exist outside of the kind of 76 to 93 period. I mean, I think Noel Gallagher is connected to it. I mean, you know, he's a roadie for the Inspiral Carpets. He was actually from Oldham, but, you know, kind of based in and around Manchester. You know, he lived on Whitworth Street for a long time, enthusiastic kind of attendance at the Hacienda. But when I listen to Oasis, I can't hear... 
Manchester in them, if you know what I mean. I mean, I can hear a lot of, you know, glam rock and stadium rock, but they owe things to, you know, bands like U2 and Beatles <laughs> yeah, as well. Beatles, you know, yeah. and a lot more than... I mean, they, have, they did yeah. have, as you talking about the legacy of Baggy being the, you know, sort of parody, they, they had the mm. cagoules, they had the swagger and that sort of they thing, did, yeah. but not, not the sound. Not the sound. Yeah. One of the great ironies is actually, on their early demos, they kind of really did have that sound, and they were turned down by Factory Records, as Factory Records were about to fall over, and Tony Wilson said they were too baggy, <laughs> and they <laughs> dismissed the band that, you know, uh, might have saved his label, but then they found their way onto, you know, creation you know, very innovative label of itself and you know, you know, yeah. Made a yeah, creation and just to go yeah. out factory creation are almost modelled on factory art in the sense of this sort of much, yeah. self destructive yeah. well, I mean, that's <laughs> visionary at the, yeah. uh, the, at the head of it, but yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of kind of stuff leads its way back to the Hacienda and I mean, Alan McGee uh, yeah. had his, you know, outlook transformed as did Bobby Lesper by going to the, yeah. Yeah. To the Hacienda. So, um, yeah, I'm not. Sure. I mean, Oasis—they kind of outgrew Manchester in a way. Yeah. I mean, they were they were so big in '96 when they did Nebworth. They were just a national, almost a global phenomenon. I mean, they were just on a on a level where it, it didn't matter where they were from. I don't think. I mean, obviously, very Mancunian and the other kind of swagger and attitude. And I do think they're, you know, William Gallagher's a very watered down Ian Brown to me. Um, he's, he's just, you know, a bit of a pastiche, but. Um, I mean, yeah. I think it's. I mean, Noel Gallagher's got got some talent. I think. I think there are some good songs in there. Yeah, well, there's a lot. There's a lot but, to commend Oasis. I think. Yeah, but, um, but and also I mean, we will have a pretty pop episode at mm. some point, and I, there will be a lot I will defend. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have to say, but you know, I think uh, at the time, I know most more sensitive friends generally were were already like thinking, oh, Oasis, what's all this about? How come they're being lumped in with you know people like Pulp and. Yeah, some yeah. of the more kind of you know literate and swayed, you know, the more literate bands. You yeah. know, it, it seemed as if it was like very much a kind of shoehorning or anybody mm. who happened to be British. Well, I mean, know, that, that's one of the things as well. Is I mean, the you know the first thing they did when they got some amount of money was they left Manchester and you know they went down to Camden and yeah. you know, arguably sucked up a lot more you know influence from that whole scene than they did. That's you know, where I was and, living at the time. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, just yeah. by chance. Certainly didn't have the money. But I think yeah. the, the thing you always come back to with Oasis is like, <coughs> has it dated well? I mean, that that's you know, mm. the fall, the Smiths, New Order, Joy Division, you know, still really powerfully relevant. But I don't, I don't see anyone now who owes a massive kind of debt to Oasis who's at, at any good really. Well, they themselves were such a pastiche of other styles. I mean, that, this is the thing. I mean, they, yeah. you know, there was nothing new in the music, absolutely nothing. You know? yeah. So, you know, to, to actually have it, it will happen. There'll be a third wave of people. I think yeah, that, yeah. that have been bands that influenced by them. Yeah, when you say bands that have been influenced by them and been good, yeah, that, that's maybe more questionable. Mm. But but they wrote, an odd, they wrote some good tunes. I'll yeah. give them the oh, yeah, I mean, they had, they had a couple of years, I think, where... Yeah. You know, they really were. I mean, they, they get a lot of crit, uh, criticism for, you know, lyrically not being, you know, very good. You know, a bit Hallmark, Cardi kind of writing. Yeah. Which is why you're saying they don't really fit in with Gold yeah. and Suede. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think both of them were very thoughtful, you know, yeah. sort of literate bands, exactly, you know, as yeah. mentioned before. But then some of Bernard Summers' lyrics for New Order. Oh, right? yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of the Manchester bands have got flaws. I mean, mm, even so, yeah. Morrissey's voice is obviously a, a kind of, you know, you know that divides opinion mm. very much so. So, yeah, I think there are very few bands who are, who are sort of perfect. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, this is one that we were going to kind of I'll throw out, but, but we've t- talked about 
Oasis possibly being the last truly significant band to come from Manchester, and that's twenty years since um, since Nebworth. So, what, why um, does Manchester seem to have gone quiet of late? Um, why is it well no longer seem to be um, churning out sort of iconic bands in the way it once did? Uh, the, the sort of recent film um, Supersonic, the documentary of, of Oasis at Nebworth, mm-hmm. is that a kind of a, a sort of sad epitaph to? Manchester's role in shaping the musical land, uh, landscape, and it's a role that it seems to have, have lost. Yeah, it does. I mean, there's. I think one of the signifiers of that is there's still an incredible appetite for the era of like, we'll broadly call it seventy six to ninety three, and a lot of those bands are still on tour and massively popular. You know, I mean, like the Stone Roses come back; they're on their third wave of uh, stadium or outdoor gigs now, and they've only produced two <laughs> two bits of new music, like literally two songs. So, um, yeah, I mean, there have been things since Oasis. You know, there's been, you know, Elbow, there's been, you know, yeah, Dubs, yeah. there's been, you know, Baddie Drum Boy, who early on, uh, early on I quite liked. Um, you yeah. came from the whole Andy Hotel. I think they're all good stable. to mention, but they're all early noughties, aren't they? You know? yeah. Well, I know Elbow became massive a bit later than mm. that. Well, a lot later than that. But uh, when, you know, I mean, I've been yeah. seeing them at last year in 2008, mm. and it was like massive, you know, it was yeah. probably like the pinnacle, but... Yeah, again, they're definitely great at Manchester. They're sort of Berry way, so yeah. But yeah, yeah. but I think yeah, one thing I would say about it is that if you if you look at the city as a whole from before the period I mentioned for say like twenty years and now the twenty years after it, it kind of makes you realise how kind of freakish that period was Mm. to get that many. You know, whether individually we we love them or you know we're not so fond of them. You know, very influential. um, You know really iconic bands. I do, I do think, even for a city the size of Manchester, like the second, probably the second biggest city in England, I think, after London. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I don't know. But uh, that for that kind of 17 years, it was a really kind of freakish output. I can't think of another city that's got that kind of, maybe the Mersey Not pound for well. pound, no. Pound I mean, pound. people often overlook London, but London yeah. is like a collection of communities, isn't it, yeah. in the yeah. same way. So, But yeah, yeah, I mean, I suppose you could broaden it out and say, well, why hasn't it happened in Bristol again? Mm. You know, why hasn't it happened yeah. in Bristol? Or, or why has London never really had a kind of... Mm. Um, you know, and I think that's a lot of things to do with that, societal changes, the way people make, distribute and consume music mm. now mm. is very different, and it's hard to get that kind of scene going, I think, from... Uh, yeah, from I mean, I think if, the, the, if you look at maybe the last sort of area to come up with a scene as such was maybe kind of the Brooklyn of, you know, mm. 2008 to about to 2013, where you have bands, not all of whom were actually indigenous New Yorkers, but a lot of them came and recorded there. So you've got, you know, Sufjan Stevens, um, Grizzly Bear, The National, that whole wave of kind of pitchfork-endorsed... Yeah kind of acts and bands as maybe the last time and, and often is the music press artificially created oh, well I think that's, that's almost always the case yeah it? I mean I think I think what's worth saying is that I think we want to be careful none of us are kind of actually on the ground in Manchester no I'm trying to be careful about saying there's there's nothing good being produced I'm sure there is and I'm going to say I'm going to mention some things I think are good being produced but they're just not getting beyond the confines of the city it seems and mm. what the reason for that is it is it because they're not sufficiently mainstream possibly um, it's just quite interesting to consider that it seems to have lost its way a bit but then like I say maybe that's the way with, with other cities as well Do you want to uh, enlighten us as to some of the Well, I was going to right mention on. here I think it's, it's a it's a pretty sorry state of affairs when um, for mainstream audiences the best cities the city or the, the area generally has been able to produce recently is, is Blossoms <laughs> yeah, they're, they're stockports it's, it's yeah. touching you know um, 
but we were actually going to thinking of featuring their album for the um, for the album of the month, but just as a way of showing how far the the city's star has fallen, but none of us can face doing it. <laughs> I know so, we will have one or two listeners who will take issue with this. But, one or two, uh, yes. Interested to get some feedback, yeah, folks. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yes, I, Andy Stott is a name that I. I mean, his stuff. He, he's a sort of DJ basically yeah. and produces his own stuff. You know, really, really good stuff. Quite sparse. Um, you know, he's not a young man. I don't think. I think he's well into his forties. But you know, he's someone who's reached critical acclaim with releases in recent times. So, yeah. I mean, and I think that's probably where I would guess where a lot of the innovation is, as it always has been. Actually, there's always been a mm. good kind of dance music underground. Um, you know, there's been sort of you know good black music. I mean, going back to the earlier nostalgic eras, we talked about. We haven't mentioned a guy called Gerald who, mm-hmm. who you know yeah. was you know produced a, some really interesting kind of yeah. music. You know, first of all with Voodoo Ray, and then also with Black Secret Technology, which was a a kind of album based on kind of drum and bass and, and jungle in the mid mid nineties. So so um, yeah, and the Fall is still going strong. The I mean, we've hardly yeah, mentioned yeah, yeah. them, but I, I did tweet before this show and said. We can't, you know, the fall of almost conversely not going to get a mention or hardly a mention. Um, and John Dobson, who's a, who's a friend of the pod, said they need their own show. So, you yeah, know, I think they we need, do. We need <laughs> to go into them another point. Just um, to read out who was in the band. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That, that would be our longest episode, I think. Um, but, yeah, I think um, any, anybody else, Ben, of the, the names that cropped up? or no? Well, I was going to mention a couple of bands that I've mentioned in an earlier episode, probably, well, back in the spring. Um, I saw them together on tour here in Oxford back in February. That was Pins, who are an mm-hmm. all-girl um, group drawn Shangri-Las, Jesus and Mary Chain. They've got a quite a sort of gritty, dark edge to them as well. Um, they were really, really good. Um, I think they're on their second album now. Um, and the band supporting them, um, Peace and Love Barbershop Muhammad Ali, um, which is named after a real barbershop, apparently. They're a sort of glam garage punk band, not dissimilar to the OCs. They formed from the ashes of a band called Brown Brogues, who I think were in around um, Manchester for quite a while. Um, they're visually and sonically stunning, the sort of support band you think, why on earth has someone picked these guys <laughs> to go on before them? Um, another mention as well, just for um, Jane Weaver, who um, is someone who's also, I think, in her 40s. Um, she's a, a favourite of Piccadilly Records. I think they named her... Um, album 2014 the silver globe their album of the year um but she's also been a favorite of the late rob gretton who was the joy division mm-hmm. and new order manager i think he was he put out some of her previous band's um work uh, on his record label she's worked with david holmes and andy votel and she's supported stereolab's Leticia sadia as well and um if you like stereolab then i think you definitely like yeah the silver good globe. tip yeah. certainly do she also runs a record label that's also worth mentioning Factory isn't the only record label in Manchester. Um, she runs a label called Bird. She's actually, I think, not a native um, Mancunian. She's she's from um, Merseyside, I think, but uh, or Cheshire anyway. But she's she definitely seems to be part of the Manchester scene yeah, now. Yeah. Hmm. And then, uh, I mean, this is again sort of general, really. But I mean, does anybody? I don't live in the city. None of us live in the city anymore. But Mike, you probably you might know is in terms of venues these days. Where where, where are the places that bands are playing? Uh, well, I mean, the ones that come to town are, you know, the uh, Fizzy Lager sponsored, uh, you know, academies of the, of the mm, world, and things mm. like that. Uh, the Night and Day Cafe, yeah, uh, yes, still, you still it really, really well. popular. Mm. Yeah, um, and I think that's one one of the things that 
has always made Manchester kind of a, a good place for bands to come up, is it? Especially in the, the kind of area we talked about before, had a plethora of kind of you know small fifty to a hundred kind of seats, mm. like sort of standing spaces. Uh, that bands could go to, but I mean, well, I mean, most of the ones we talked about before, as I mentioned, they've gone now, uh, which is quite a shame. Yeah. So I mean, I haven't actually lived in Manchester since two thousand and two, so I'm a bit, uh, a bit disconnected from it. Um, so a lot of it is kind of you know upstairs in bars kind of stuff mm. now that um, mm. I'm not too au fait with. I don't know if any of you. I've been a few. Yeah, um, I've been a few in the last few years. So so um, in terms of, I mean, I was mentioned festivals. So there's there's sounds from the other city, which is in um, Salford. That's. Uh, Festival that takes place on the Sun. It's a Sunday of the first bank holiday in May, um, so I think this coming year it's going on the thirtieth of April. Actually, um, it's in Salford. It's on the length of Chapel Street in Islington Mill, which is a, a sort of well-used venue. I think for some of the more left-field things, that's kind of the heart of it. Certainly, the year that I went, which is twenty twelve, that was where the um, you collected the wristbands and things, and there were bands on there. But it's in you know pubs up and down that road. Really good, um, really good festival that is, um, and there's also. Um, Another one that I think has just had its fifth year, which is a carefully planned festival, um, which is actually in Manchester itself, in the Northern Quarter, um, and that's a, a two-day event over a weekend in October. Um, so I was going to say, in terms of sort of where the spiritual heart of the music scene is now, um, I and mean, I think, like you say, a lot of these buildings have all these iconic venues have gone, but I, I still think there's there's plenty going on. So. Oldham Street and Northern Court is is now where I think where it's at. Yeah. Um, so interesting. That was actually that's actually where Drybar is. That mm, was almost yeah. like an early adopter of the Northern Court. Yeah. Um, so Factory opened it and gave it the, the catalogue number, like they did to their records. Um, and it's it, yeah, it is it is a sort of swankyish bar now. It's not it's not necessarily the sort of dive you might expect. Oh, no. yeah. um, but then um, on the same road, there's Piccadilly Records, which we mentioned a yeah. few times. Fantastic record shop. Um, and a whole host of independent second-hand record shops as well, catering to all sorts of different genres. So um, you can pick your genre and pick your shop. Um, there's also some really good gig venues. Um, there's the Castle Hotel has a back room. That's that's an old sort of boozer that's been done up. It's a nice one. Um, mm. And then the Night and Day Cafe, both of which I think, certainly the Castle Hotel was, was used for the, the carefully planned festival. Now, the Night and Day... Um, in the last couple of years, three years, I think it's been facing the, the familiar threat from residents who move in and complain about noise because they move into a nice vibrant area and then complain about what makes it vibrant. Um, the Music Venue Trust, um, bless them, are helping to fight the venue's corner, which is great. Um, one of the places I was going to mention is the Deaf Institute, um, which I haven't been to myself, but I gather from friends who have, say so it's absolutely stunning inside um, and it seems to play host to a lot of very good gigs. Um, I just like the idea of gigs being held in the Deaf Institute <laughs> as well. Um, yeah. One of the quick one I would just mention actually is uh, the student union on uh, on yes. Oxford Road. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can underplay the importance of students in Manchester, in the city, and what and what, what they contribute to um, the music scene. I think it's still the most applied to university in uh, in Britain, and I think one of the reasons for that is that it has this kind of cultural heritage to it, which is obviously very attractive to someone who's you know. But there's more. There's more than just the one university, isn't there? Several yeah, yeah, yeah. Full of students, so yeah. 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 So I remember seeing House of Love at the Mandela building, the, the Poly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I totally agree. And actually, I re- one thing that really got my go was when Tony Wilson started slagging off students because I thought you would be nowhere if they hadn't. Yeah. Students pretty much kept that place going for the first five or six years. Um, you know, and, and the Temperance Night, which was a great club night on the Thursday, played mm. a lot of indie stuff, was my favourite night. And that was all students. Yeah. You know, it really was. So, yeah, I think he bit the hand that fed yeah. him a bit there. And as soon as, you know, the locals started moving in with 
with the you know with the the kind of acid house and sort of you know when things start to get a little bit livelier um but yeah, yeah. very true mike yeah. that's another strand of it actually is um people who go to the city you know like the chemical brothers uh, went to university in manchester yeah. purely because because of new order they're such huge fans of new order yeah and you know and then in the years they were there i think like 90 to 93 kind of soaked in all that kind of uh you know the influence of the hacienda yeah yeah, yeah. Um, right, okay, well, I think that rounds off the discussion. Pretty long, uh, but I think you'll agree, great musical legacy. I mean, you mentioned them very briefly, the Buzzcocks and mm, the magazine. Yeah, you've probably mentioned, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, very idea that they can be, a, you know, almost a footnote, possibly wrongly, just really sums it up, doesn't it? Despite mm. the, the sort of slightly, allegedly disappointing last few years. So, mm. um, And now we're going to come to Album of the Month. Um and it's Jaguar Mars every now and then. Uh, Jaguar Mars, as we mentioned earlier on, we were thinking about doing Blossoms who are from Stockport, but we felt the album had been out a bit too long. I think it's been out about <laughs> 10, 11 weeks now. So Jaguar Mars' second album is, is just out. And uh, yeah, thoughts, fellas? Any, uh, any thoughts early on? Well, I mean, we, we kind of picked this one. When we weren't going to do Blossoms, we picked this one because it the first album had such a... It was, you know, it was claimed it was very baggy influenced, and I think Pitchfork review of the new one says very much the same. Says it's very much enthralled to the work of Andy Basil, all his sort of fingerprints all over it. Now, I, um, given my um, feelings about Stone Roses, refused to investigate the debut album Howling on those grounds. I read one comparison, I was like, I'm not going near that. Um, so, um, I also it was a favourite of Noel Gallagher, and that again is a, a kiss of death to me. Um, I mean, I love his interviews, but when he recommends a band, I know to not listen. Um, yeah, the, the, um, uh, so I would say I approached this one with, with real caution. Now, initially, I was actually very pleasantly surprised, I think. Um, so the first two tracks, Falling, which is a sort of swirling, ambient sort of opening. It's got all these disembodied voices going on. And then the second track, Say What You Feel, um, it's got the sort of lush textures and sort of harmonic vocals. Um, it, it felt to me quite a lot like Animal Collective, actually. Yeah. Um, mm. And, you know, no matter what you think about Animal Collective Live, and they are awful, um, on record I think they're a great band. And, and so I actually, I really was caught by these first two tracks and thought, this is this is good. Um, sadly, I didn't think it was sustained. Um, the next track, Loose Ends, and then a single that's later on, Obi-Wan, they've got that sort of, um, yeah, Ian Brown's Simeon swagger that I can't stand. <laughs> um, they're not, they're, they're, they're sort of a hint of Kasabian, but it's not as bad as that, but it's it's there. Um the most recent single, um, which is the second take from the album, which is "Give Me a Reason," sort of is a is a like seven minute long song, and it kind of goes into deep into sort of sort of late eighties acid house. And I, I can understand that um, music's important at the time, but I can't, I couldn't really get into the song. I have to say, um, and I also thought the album generally is a bit too processed and slick. It reminded me in that respect a bit of that um, the last Taming Parlor album. Yeah, um, and they're associates. Really. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they're both both Australian. Both uh, yeah. So um, there were moments later on. There's a song called High Rotations that is quite strange and quite interesting. That seemed to threaten to take it back in a more more uh, direction I might prefer. And I really like the vocals on the last track, Colors of Paradise, because it's it's very Animal Collective again. Um, but generally, I didn't think the album had great ambitions. It felt a bit like a it's going to be soundtracking arms loft moments in the club when you've just taken your brain out and drunk too much um, yeah it, it kind of if Animal Collective are for the, the Pitchfork reader I think this felt like it was definitely for the, the NME V Festival type going right. 
mm. this and that. Um, but it wasn't. It certainly wasn't as bad as I was expecting. Yeah. Um, I mean, from my point of view, I mean, I think that Pitchfork review and apologies is not the best thing to do on a podcast to sort of recommend that you go away and read something, but we'll tweet <laughs> it. It. Um, yeah, I can see the the the, the kind of Manchester and possibly to a greater degree Primal Scream kind of parallels yeah. of that sort of early 90s um, sort of thing but for me I, I, I think the parallel is more with kind of new rave really which is mm. you know that kind of almost forgotten now kind of genre that grew up in another area I lived in at the time which was uh, Hoxton I didn't live there actually I worked there um, around about 2010 2011 I think it would have been and of course Claxon Zoo very briefly shone and then were quickly Tanks. dismissed. <laughs> yeah. Um and the friendly fires who possibly had a little bit more longevity, I guess, fitted into that kind of bracket. But because for me the album is pretty slick, you know, and and, and to be perfectly frank, it does sound like it's been recorded in Australia on a beach or near a beach rather than <laughs> in a kind of rain soaked um, set of terraced houses or near to rain terraced houses as all the Manchester bands <laughs> music that we talked about were so um, I guess another band I guess is sort of not a million miles away from sort of Passion Pit and that, that, mm, those kind yeah, of sort yeah, of that's bands. What it reminded me of yeah. yeah you know like um, I, I'm i a bit with you Ben I mean I, I actually think it's a bit better than the first album I, I do quite like it and I think there are a couple of tracks that I, I mean overall I don't think it's sensational I think it's amazing I think it's okay I think it's, it's good and no more than that but I do th- agree with you that Say What You Feel the second track's mm. a great track and, and I really really like the final track Colours of Paradise but, I yeah, think that, that is, is a good, great yeah. Almost one of those kind of Sasha from Ibiza type numbers, yeah. you know, that kind of come down on a beach type thing, you know, mm. from the kind of you know late eight, late nineties. We're going to be discussing that mm. scene in a future episode with David Cox, by the way. That whole kind of like you know superstar DJ scene, mm. but but yeah, so I think it's picked a little bit from Manchester, a little bit from the kind of nineties superstar DJ culture, a bit from New Rave, um, all of which were influenced by each other, of course, and. Um, yeah, it's all right. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm definitely going to put it on again a few more times. I think. Yeah. And I think if the, the sort of final word for me, honestly, I think I think it's it's testament to the, the sort of truly when we're talking about Manchester, the truly global influence of Manchester. Because I think you can't you can't hear the baggy in there. For me, I can hear yeah. more sort of budget, you know, Poundland uh, Animal Collective. But I think there is yeah. a Manchester thing going on there, um, and it's you know it shows that it's not only transcended time. You know, it's it's, it's 25 years since that that sort of heyday of that period it's also geography this is the other side of the world this is Australia so um, yeah it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting album to me I think it's like I say far far better than I was expecting yeah, yeah. yeah. how about bit, you Mike it was a bit baggy for numbers by me I mean I yeah. thought um, I thought the last track kind of really saved the um, saved the whole thing and it kind of but yeah I mean it just goes back to an era that I just thought because baggy is such a kind of one trick pony of a of a genre, I never thought I would see that genre kind of you know recreated at any time really, let alone you know where, where it's still you know in quite recent memory. And you've got a lot of the people from that era still doing it. Really. So yeah. I've not seen any pictures of them. I mean, do they? They look like dream? Animal Collective types. Do they really? Yeah, yeah. So they don't. <laughs> yeah, don't look, don't look like like no, no, I don't. Think, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, it's interesting with Tame Impala comparisons, which you know we did talk about there. 
their uh, album from last year on the first episode of Sounding Board in mm. January, didn't we? And you, you had quite a lot to say about it. I mean, they, they, it's interesting. There are some similarities with Jaguar and Mar, but lots of big differences as well, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, great. Okay. Well, I mean, I think you know, I would say cautious thumbs up from me. I think I don't think any of us are bowled over by the album, but I think there's some interesting things going on there, so worth checking out, and we'll tweet it. Um, thanks very much for listening. Um, that was episode 10 of Sounding Board. Um, episode 11, we're expecting to be fairly hot on the heels, actually, so look out for that. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at SoundingBoard69. Um, we've got various other ways of getting hold of us on Facebook. We've got an email address, uh, which I'll, I'll put on a tweet. And, and basically, thank you for listening. Um, thank you to Mike. Um, Mike, do you want to sort of plug a little enterprise that you got involved in uh, last year? Yeah. Oh, this is or shameless. Earlier this year. Shameless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so last year, uh, well, you know, as you reviewed this, I wrote a book, uh, When Football Came Home. Uh, so that's, well, not last year, it's this year, isn't it? So yes, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's about uh, 1996, uh, specifically the European Championship in England, but also how that kind of ties in with, um, you know, Britpop, Cool Britannia, you know, the, the messianic rise of Tony Blair, all that kind of thing. So it's kind of, the idea is it's a cultural uh, kind of review of that whole summer. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's 12.99 in all good and bad bookshops. <laughs> if you yeah, want and, 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 and superb it is too. It's yes. impeccably well, researched. And uh, I'd like to say that we will almost certainly in the next 12 months be getting Mike on again, probably to talk about that era again, I think, in a little bit more depth. We touched on it today with Oasis, but I think we've, we've got to kind of maybe the 21-year anniversary of mm. Britpop will be the time to step <laughs> forward on that. Um, and thank you to Ben as well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we're back in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>